This, of course, is one of the great paradoxes in the Bible, perhaps the great paradox in the Bible. On the one hand, Jesus clearly holds people responsible for their rejection of the kingdom. And yet, on the other hand, he says that believing and receiving the kingdom is ultimately a gift given in the sovereign discretion of God. That seeming tension can be found, it seems, on almost every page of the Bible. It is never fully explained to us, and yet we are commanded to believe in both sides of it. We are not permitted to be fatalists, to say, well, God decides who believes and who doesn't, so I guess there's nothing we can do. No, you are responsible, just as the people of Capernaum were responsible, and your responsibility increases the more you have heard and seen. So you're responsible. You are making real choices. You are hearing and thinking and deciding that's real. And you are not allowed to turn away from that reality. And yet, faith is always in some sense a gift. God always goes first and he always deserves the glory for every person who sees and who believes. Both sides of that antimony are regularly taught in Holy Scripture. They often appear side by side in the same passage as they do here. And to deny either its proper weight and emphasis is an act of unfaithfulness to the text. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Human beings are responsible They are making real choices for which they will be held accountable. And yet, the Lord is sovereign, faith is a miracle, and conversion is always a gracious gift from God. It can be hard to understand how exactly those truths hold together, and yet we do see them frequently presented side by side without apology in the pages of Holy Scripture, as in fact, we do here in Matthew 11. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 11. I mentioned in the last episode that most scholars understand Matthew 11.1 as really the concluding verse to the whole section beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, to which we gave the title, The Kingdom Extended Under Jesus' Authority. In verse 2 of chapter 11, we begin a new section that we may title, teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom against rising opposition. This section runs through to the end of chapter 13. In this section, we observe the continuing split within Judaism with respect to the identity and claims of Christ. You remember that one of Matthew's major themes is the theme of Israel and the church. In this section, we're going to see that just as the Jewish leaders rejected John, While many of the common people embraced him, so too a similar division is occurring with respect to Jesus. As with the forerunner, so with he who follows. We will observe Jesus continuing to call, and we will observe many coming and many rejecting. Much of the opposition to Jesus stems from his claim to be able to authoritatively interpret the law, particularly with respect to the Sabbath. Jesus will demonstrate his authority by means of many healings, but ultimately the leaders will suppress that evidence and declare that he is working in the power of Satan. Who then should the people listen to? 
Jesus tells his people to look at the outcomes associated with the teaching advocated by various leaders. As for himself, Jesus identifies explicitly with those who do the will of the Father and embrace the Messiah that has been sent to them. The question of why some embrace Jesus and his message while others reject him is discussed through a series of parables. The section ends with the story of Jesus' rejection at Nazareth. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, you know things are getting bad when even the guy sent from God to announce you to the world is starting to have doubts about your identity and mission. Clearly, things are not going as John expected, which means we ought to be asking as readers, what did John expect? Who was he looking for? And what was he expecting Jesus to do? Just flip back in your Bibles quickly to Matthew 3.10. John says there, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Clearly, John expected a climactic coming. John expected the stone from heaven that would shatter the kingdoms of this world and that would grow up into the mountain of the Lord's house. Do you remember that? That was from the vision of the future that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel told him, this is from Daniel 2, 34 to 35. He says, O king, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel later interpreted the vision saying, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Daniel 2, 44-45. So in the Old Testament, there was an expectation that a rock would come from heaven and shatter all the kingdoms of this world, and that that rock would then grow up into a mountain that filled the whole earth. And that is the foundation of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that would come, that would come down from heaven, and that would grow and grow and grow until the kingdom of heaven was the kingdom of this world earth. That was the expectation. And John, of course, assumes that Jesus is that stone. 
and therefore he expected more shattering, more explosiveness, and more upheaval. That's why he said, the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Jesus is here. Jesus is the axe. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the one who will upend and change the world. But what is Jesus actually doing? He is traveling around Galilee, preaching sermons and helping the sick and the poor. Clearly, John thinks something has been lost in translation. John is confused. He's he's disappointed and he is discouraged. Things are not going according to his expectations. Now, what John didn't see and what many others didn't see was the slowness of the process of growth and change. That's why we're going to have the parable of the mustard seed in just a minute. And, And John also apparently didn't see the two comings of Jesus, first to offer salvation and repentance, and then to bring judgment and the rod of iron. John didn't see the process, and John didn't see the cross. No one saw the cross. The salvation that Jesus brought was more expensive and more expansive than John and most other Jews at that time had expected. The cross was a surprise. And the wideness of the invitation was a surprise. And John the Baptist had to wrestle with that. Jesus was not going to edit his sense of mission in order to conform to John's expectations. That's why he said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, having put John the Baptist in his place, as it were, Jesus now moves to defend John to the disciples, lest they think that he had entirely missed the mark. We jump back into the story of verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There is a sense in which we should think of John the Baptist as the last of the Old Testament prophets and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And yet, as we've just heard, his understanding of Christ was ultimately partial at this point in the story. And that's why Jesus says that to be in the new covenant is inevitably to be further on even than John the Baptist. John was right as far as the Old Testament was able to see. He wasn't wrong. He just didn't have the whole story. Jesus was more than he expected. Now, that's important for us to understand with respect to John, but even more it's important for us to understand that in terms of what it says about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. It isn't a case of wrong versus right. It is a case of good versus better. When you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you are moving to an epoch of better graces, greater understanding, deeper clarity, more intimate access, and better leadership and mediation 
Thanks be to God. That's the outline, basically, of the epistle to the Hebrews. And that's one of the most important takeaways from this passage. Now, Jesus has a few more things to say about John the Baptist. We continue the story in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, verse 12 is a little bit difficult to interpret. D.A. Carson offers this explanation. From the days of John the Baptist, i.e. from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the kingdom has been forcefully advancing, but it has not swept all opposition aside as John expected, closed quote. That seems to make sense given the context. Again, remember, John expected Jesus to be swinging an axe, casting down kings and kingdoms, and setting up his own eternal rule. He did not expect the king of the universe to suffer or permit opposition. But the theme of this section is increasing opposition. The offer is going out and it is being resisted by many. And Jesus isn't crushing it. Jesus isn't ruling over people with a rod of iron as John had been led to expect. Now, does this mean that Jesus is a fundamentally different Messiah than predicted by the Old Testament? No, it just means that the timing is different than many people had assumed. But what John expected will indeed come to pass at the end. The second coming of Jesus is very different than the first, but very much like what John was originally expecting. Consider Revelation 19, 11 to 16. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Closed quote. Well, there it is. That is exactly what John was looking for. But here we are learning that before that happens, the mercy and grace of the Lord will be extended. Jesus will die on the cross for our sins and extend the offer of forgiveness to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. And only then will he come, swinging his axe and wielding his rod and establishing his eternal kingdom. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because that's a tension that I know I need help with keeping straight in my brain, and I imagine that many of our listeners need help with this as well. What is the place of violence in the kingdom of God? Jesus said that the violent are entering the kingdom by force, and you just read a passage about 
a white horse. And here in Matthew 11, we've got axes at the root of the tree. And a couple of chapters ago, we were being told to turn the other cheek and love our enemies. So help me out here because my head is spinning. How exactly does all of this seemingly contradictory material go together? What is the place, if indeed there is a place, for violence in the kingdom of God? Yeah, that's a great question and a really timely question because I think there's probably more violent rhetoric out there in evangelicalism right now on both sides of the border than I can ever recall in my lifetime. So it probably is a good idea to slow down and think this through. Let's go back to the line in Matthew 11 that you referred to. In Matthew 11:12, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force, close quote. Now, in the program audio, I quoted D.A. Carson there, who understands that saying in a metaphorical way. Jesus is saying that the kingdom is advancing forcefully, though there is still opposition that must be swept aside. So he understands the words violence and violent there in a metaphorical sense. And I think that's the way that most people have understood those terms over the years. Jesus spoke in metaphorical ways all the time, and recognizing that is not in any way a threat to the doctrine of inerrancy. We respect the Bible best when we try to understand each verse in the sense in which the original author or speaker wanted to be understood. When Jesus says, I haven't come to bring peace but a sword, everybody understands that he's talking metaphorically there. He's talking about the sword of division. That's just colorful and forceful language. And I think the context always makes it clear as to how certain expressions should be understood. And so it is here. In Pilgrim's Progress, uh, there's a wonderful scene in the early part of that story where Christian, who's the main character, is fleeing from the city of destruction. And he's on his way to the celestial city. And he spends some time in the house of interpreter. Now, of course, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. Most of the symbols, though, are very bottom shelf in terms of what they mean. Uh, Most people who study the book believe that the house of interpreter represents the church, uh, specifically the ministry of the church to new believers. Now, in the house of interpreter, Christian is shown a variety of visions which are given to explain the nature of the Christian life and faith in general. And one of those visions reflects precisely what we're talking about here. Bunyan tells the story this way. He says, Then the interpreter took Christian to a pleasant place with a beautiful stately palace. Upon the upper balcony, several people clothed in gold walked. May we go in? Christian asked. The interpreter led him toward the door of the palace. A large group of men stood around the door, wanting to go in, but not having the courage to go further. Off to the side, a man sat at a table with a book and an inkwell, waiting to take the name of any who enters. Let's just pause and break out from the story and make sure you understand what we're seeing. He sees a vision where there's a, a castle or, or a palace, obviously representing heaven, and he wants to go in, but it appears to be guarded. The way there looks Difficult, And there's a man at a t- with a table ready to take the name of anybody who wants to attempt the passage. All right, I'll, I'll jump back into the story. In the doorway stood many armored men resolved to hurt any who attempted to enter the palace. A bold man approached the man at the table and said, write down my name, sir. 
With that, the bold man drew his sword, donned his helmet, and fiercely fought his way through the armed men at the door. Finally, he prevailed and entered the palace. Inside, a pleasant voice sang, Come in, come in, eternal glory you shall win. And the man was clothed in fine garments. I know the meaning of that, said Christian. Well, I wonder if we do. Bunyan clearly understands that the Christian life is a war in the sense that we have to press through a number of barriers and difficulties in order to enter into the kingdom of God. We have to press through family loyalty. We have to press through cultural consensus. We have to battle the lust of the flesh. We have to slay the pride of life, etc., etc., etc. These are spiritual battles, not physical or military battles. And I think Bible readers typically understand that. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 provides a perfect example of the way he typically uses this kind of language. He says in verses 3 to 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So Paul's very clear here. Yes, we're at war. Yes, this is a violent conflict, but it's not a physically violent conflict. It is a spiritual battle. We are at war against spiritual darkness and ignorance. We are at war against sinful patterns and desires. We are at war against remaining sin and weakened nature. The Christian has to be violent or forceful in that sense. But as you said, he or she must turn the other cheek and love enemies and bless those who persecute us in terms of our actual literal behavior towards other people. Now, is there actual violence at the end when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead? Yes, but that is something that he will do because that is something that only he is qualified to do. It is not something that we've been entrusted with. Thanks be to God. Mm, Yeah, that's a really helpful clarification. Thank you for that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he is a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Here, Jesus says that this generation is rather like a group of stubborn children who have a multitude of excuses as to why they will not enter the kingdom. We don't like John and we don't like Jesus, two men who were very different in personality. Well, if you don't like either of them, then what do you like? You like nothing, Jesus says. You like yourselves. You like being rebels. And you should know that there is a price to pay for that. And we hear about that price in the following verses. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The more you know, the more you will be held accountable for, Jesus is saying. There is such a thing, we must note, as personal responsibility. And yet, side by side with that truth, Jesus goes right on to talk about the sovereign electing grace of God. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This, of course, is one of the great paradoxes in the Bible, perhaps the great paradox in the Bible. On the one hand, Jesus clearly holds people responsible for their rejection of the kingdom. And yet, on the other hand, he says that believing and receiving the kingdom is ultimately a gift given in the sovereign discretion of God. That seeming tension can be found, it seems, on almost every page of the Bible. It is never fully explained to us, and yet we are commanded to believe in both sides of it. We are not permitted to be fatalists, to say, well, God decides who believes and who doesn't, so I guess there's nothing we can do. No, you are responsible, just as the people of Capernaum were responsible, and your responsibility increases the more you have heard and seen. So you're responsible. You are making real choices. You are hearing and thinking and deciding that's real. And you are not allowed to turn away from that reality. And yet, faith is always in some sense a gift. God always goes first and he always deserves the glory for every person who sees and who believes. Both sides of that antimony are regularly taught in Holy Scripture. They often appear side by side in the same passage as they do here. And to deny either its proper weight and emphasis is an act of unfaithfulness to the text. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God graciously determines to reveal the secrets of the kingdom to little children, whom We take to mean the low and the least, the simple and the poor of spirit. And now we learn that this disclosure is mediated through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who shows the secrets of the kingdom to those God has graciously favored. And yet, the invitation is wide, far wider than John the Baptist had expected. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus Here invites not the wise and the powerful, but the humble and the heavy laden. Thanks be to God. 
Amen to that. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 